This is a Squeeze podcast. We're your shortcut to being informed. Hi, it's Claire Kimball here, the founder of The Squiz. This week marks six years of putting out The Squiz Today podcast, and I just wanted to say a huge thank you for listening. If you love what we do, and we hope you do, please tell your friends about us. It's all the birthday present we could ever need. It's January and the Australian Open is in full flight and organisers are talking about what more the tennis tournament and the sport could be. So in this Squiz shortcut, we'll scope out how big the top tour is now and we'll have a look at the proposals for growth. Squiz Shortcuts is the backstory to the big news stories. I'm Alice Dempster. And I'm Claire Kimball. It's truly January for so many Aussies when the summer of tennis kicks into gear with tournaments around the country, culminating with the Australian Open in Melbourne. Before we dive into contemporary issues, let's take a quick look at its history. And Claire, I was surprised to learn that it wasn't always held in Melbourne. Yeah, and this is what we're here for, Alice, for these surprising (laughs) little treats that you didn't know about. So yeah, the Australian Open was first played in Melbourne in 1905, back in those days. It was the Australasian Championships and since then it was held in Sydney, in Adelaide, Brisbane, Perth, as well as New Zealand, which I guess is the, you know, regional part of Australasia. (laughs) But in 1972, it settled in Melbourne, first in Kooyong and then in 1988 at Flinders Park where it remains today. And Claire, it's an important tournament, not just to Aussies but also on the world circuit. It's the first of four Grand Slam tournaments played across the year. The others are the French Open from late May to early June, Wimbledon in late June to early July, and then the US Open in late August to early September. And it sounds simple, but there's a whole history behind how the modern tennis tour came about. We're currently in what's called the Open era, and that's because since 1968, all players, amateur and professional, are allowed to compete at those four Grand and slam events. Mm, so that's what the open bit of the Australian Open means, not that it's played out in the open of an outdoor court, which is what I thought it was, Claire. <laughs> yeah, and I can totally see why your mind might have gone there. Uh, but Alice, if you were thinking that allowing amateurs and professional players to compete in those four majors was a concession to the amateurs, it wasn't. Before 1968, only amateur players were allowed to compete. There was a strong professional circuit, though. But this change brought things together and it made these tournaments the pinnacle of the tennis calendar. And while we're talking about changes, the Australian Open wasn't always on a hard surface. Until the move from Kooyong to Flinders Park, it was played on grass. Yeah, and these days only Wimbledon continues to be played on a grass surface. The French Open is played on clay and both the Australian Open and the US Open are played on hard courts. They're very different skills required to master those surfaces, but some do it better than others. If you want to win a Grand Slam, that is take out each of the four majors, you have to be really good at all of those court surfaces. Claire, I reckon that's enough background though to the majors. What else is involved in this tour? 
Yeah, so the men's and the women's circuits are run by different organisations, the ATP for the men and the WTA for the women. Across the year, there are about 60 tournaments in about 30 countries. And if you're a player, your access to those tournaments is dictated by your ranking. And your ranking is dictated by how you go at those tournaments, but not all tournaments are equal. So to take the men's ATP tour as an example, it includes ATP 250, ATP 500 and ATP Masters 1000 events. Those categories denote the number of rankings points awarded to the champion. Grand Slams award 2,000 points to the winner. Yeah, those Grand Slam events really do pay not just in prize money but also those ranking points. And how your ranking and access to tournaments play out is that it also impacts your ability to earn money Mm. as a player. Now, in terms of the revenue situation, tennis is roughly a US $2 billion business. The industry can only support about 100 or so players in each of the men's and women's comps. So about 75% of the revenue in elite tennis comes from the big four Grand Slam events. That's through sponsorship deals, media and broadcast rights, and then ticket sales as well. And as for what the players take out of that revenue... It's not a lot, Claire. No, it's not a lot. About 25% of the revenue generated from the tour goes back to the players. Of course, the very top players do very well through lucrative sponsorship and endorsement deals, but they are the cream of the crop. And just a note on the women's tour, outside of the four Grand Slam events in 2022, men earned about 70% more on average than women in those tournaments. Last year, the women's tour, though, struck a deal for pay equity. So all that to say, there are many reasons why people say it's a sport that's ripe for disruption. Let's get into that next. Claire, the person to know in this part of the shortcut is Craig Tiley. He's the CEO of Tennis Australia. If you're a news junkie or a tennis tragic, you've probably heard of him. Yeah, absolutely. So (laughs) Tiley joined Tennis Australia in 2005 as the director of tennis. He became the Australian Open tournament director. A message now from our podcast partner, Sunbeam. With so many unhealthy snacks on offer, it can be hard to find something to keep your kids satisfied and happy. Sunbeam's dried fruit and cheese chilled snacks contain only real fruit and real cheese with no artificial colours or flavours. And they're a great source of calcium. It's a snack you can feel good about giving them while you're on the go. Pick up a pack today in the dairy fridge at your local Woolworths, Coles or independent retailer. In the year after that, and he's been the National Body's Chief Executive since 2013. If you're that tennis tragic, you've likely heard (laughs) the players talk about him. They form very close relationships with the tournament directors, so he usually gets a thanks in their victory speeches or if they've lost in those speeches too. (laughs) And if you're a news junkie, you might remember him as the guy who was really giving a lot of the responses Mm. in relation to Novak Djokovic's trip to immigration detention in 2022. Yeah, remember that. It's crazy to think that was a couple of years ago now. Of course, that was over Djokovic's unvaccinated status during the pandemic. 
But Claire, this summer, Tylee's been in the news for a different reason. That's because he's been out and about articulating this new vision for the Australian Open and for tennis more broadly. The Australian Open, let's start there. It's now a $500 million tournament and organisers hope that it'll be played before a crowd of about 900,000 people this year. Yeah, it's already the biggest Grand Slam tournament in terms of attendance. So hitting that 900,000 mark would be quite an achievement. And $500 million sounds like a lot of revenue, but Tennis Australia isn't profitable. No, and that's not to say that they're losing money. What Tylee says is that they've made a conscious decision not to turn a profit. What they do is they run a high-quality Australian Open, and those lead-in events around the country also take a bit of money to stage, and also they fund the state-based tennis bodies to boost participation numbers. And you mentioned the high-quality Australian Open as an event. Tylee has a big vision for what it could be to turn Tennis Australia into a $1 billion business, so doubling its revenue. Yeah, and within five years as well, so not that much time to get to that mark. Um, He wants to offer players more than $100 million in prize money for the Australian Open. That's up from $86.5 million this year. He says investing millions of dollars in digital transformation is needed. That would go into the viewer experience, whether they're at the ground or whether they're watching it at home. Um, They're already onto that. They're already doing some of that work. And what Tylee says is that he wants to create experiences for those who do attend the event. They're already a bit down the road on that as well. Yeah, if you go to the Open, you'd know what that looks like. Lots of restaurants and places to watch tennis, not just on the court. And Tylee has a big ambition for it. Yeah, so what he has told the media this summer is that, and this is the quote, I want the Australian Open to be the biggest sporting event, not just in the Southern Hemisphere or in January, but the biggest sporting event in the world. So, Claire, that's the Australian Open. What about the tour more broadly? Yes, so Craig Tiley is all over that as well. He's driving a behind-the-scenes push to revamp the International Tennis Tour, and that would see the four Grand Slam events combine forces with about 10 other big global tournaments. They would create a premier tier circuit, and that would feature the best male and female players. But to do that, it is going to cost a lot of money. Yeah, it sure will. And reports say that that would have to come from private investment. But to make it work, it would see tennis's governing body, so organisations like Tennis Australia, also having a financial stake in that circuit. Yeah, those discussions are already up and running to make that happen. And funny enough, the people who are involved in all of that are all in Melbourne at the moment. Yeah, so did we mention the Australian Open is on? (laughs) (laughs) So the leaders of the Men's Association of tennis professionals, that ATP, also the Women's Tennis Association, the WTA, um, also the player representative bodies there in Melbourne as we speak. Investment from Saudi Arabia has also been mentioned when it comes to funding this new venture. Claire, the Saudi government has form when it comes to disrupting sport. Yeah, so Saudi Arabia's public investment fund has made investments in golf, soccer and also mixed martial arts. Golf is the example to point to where the Saudi-funded Live Tour has paid huge sums to lure top players. Mm. That includes Australia's Cameron Smith. They've lured them from the established tours. So they have done it before. And reports say Saudi Arabia wants to get into hosting big tennis tournaments 
tournaments and has even proposed an event to be held in early January that would compete with and probably hurt Australia's lead in tournaments. Yeah, so there's been quite a bit already said about Tylee's thinking. Maybe he's thinking that he needs to get in front of this and get the Saudis in the broader tent, uh, offer them an opportunity to be part of this new thing and then everyone can benefit. Not so keen on that, though, are critics who say that it would be another opportunity for Saudi Arabia to engage in sports washing. That's the accusation of using the fields of play to change their public image and wallpaper over their human rights record, for example. Yeah, exactly right. That is the criticism. But all of this is just speculation really at the moment with a few facts coming from those who are having these talks. So there is a lot to shake out yet. And that's your shortcut to the business of tennis. Now on to our recommendations. Each shortcut, we like to give you recommendations for further reading, listening and watching. Claire, the interview Craig Tiley gave to the Financial Review outlining a lot of this just before the start of the Australian Open is worth a read if you're into tennis. Yeah, absolutely. He does articulate that really big vision. It's well worth a read. Uh, And to bookend that, it was The Athletic from the New York Times that first reported on these talks taking place about a premium tour. That was in November last year. So we've got a link to that too. Good one. I'll put those links in the episode notes. Thank you for listening and remember to share this episode with your mates who want to catch up on the latest happenings in the world of tennis and we'll catch you next time. G'day, Kate Watson here. I'm the host of Weekly Wrap and News Club, a place for conversations about the news. It's budget week, so I'm here to tell you about our News Club episode from last week where Claire chatted with James Chessel. He's the former Managing Director of Publishing at Nine Entertainment. He was also a staffer earlier in his career, so they have a good chat about how the budget sausage is made. Here's a small snippet. The most important policy or set of policies the government will announce every year. So it's important that it's not um, announced willy-nilly, although Mm. they do leak (laughs) a a fair amount of it. And there is a famous time when when, um, Laurie Oakes, the nine journalist, got his hand on the budget papers the day before the budget and was able to print. such an incredible story. Was able to print a lot of it, um, which was, you know, absolutely amazing. Um, (laughs) But the other thing is... A lot of what the Treasurer will announce has the ability to move markets, yeah. um, direct impact on on businesses and, and other organisations. So, you know, there does need to be some rigour and uh, confidence that it will be handed, handled in an appropriate, appropriate way. For more on that chat, just search for News Club in your podcast app or follow the link in your episode notes.